always a good place to to get to. From Revelation 21, the, the reading will come up on the screen as well. This is the last in our series uh, of Dangerous Faith from Revelation, and it's, it's called uh, the Bible's Most Radical Verse. Then I saw, writes John, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away. Every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This will be the second death. We're going to hear in a few moments from, uh, from Ron uh, Boyd McMillan as he reflects on this verse, this passage, and entitles it the Bible's most radical verse. Indeed, it is. This has been a series. Uh, Ron works for Open Doors International. He's uh, been uh, uh, someone who has been a journalist and lived and worked in all sorts of places around the world. And, and for quite a long time, he's worked with Open Doors, and both in Holland and internationally, and is also behind the world watch list. It's, it's wonderful to talk to him, to hear some of his stories of his time in, in Eastern Europe when the Soviet Union was uh, still in existence. He's been uh, serving and working in all sorts of places uh, if in, in Asia as well and further afield. And it, it's really brilliant to, to read and to understand something of the, the letter, this vision, the apocalyptic book, Revelation, with the lens of how is it read and how is it understood for those who are oppressed, for those who are finding things difficult. We, we in the West aren't necessarily in that place, although uh, in some parts of the country that is true. The World Watch List has a series of, of, of uh, criteria that they assess and understand how difficult it is to be a believer, a follower of Jesus in certain countries. And they put out the world watch list and that lists the 50th to the first most difficult country to be a believer in this current age, 2018. The most difficult place is North Korea still and Afghanistan and, and so forth. You can look at that list yourself. I wonder where you think Britain is on that list. Any ideas? We're not in the top 50 just to say that. 
Uh, there's about 220 countries in the world. Where would you put Britain at the moment? Do shout out. 100? 200? 170? We're actually in the 70s. quite interesting, isn't it? The Bible, as we're reminded, particularly the New Testament, is so often written by persecuted believers for persecuted believers. Persecuted doesn't necessarily mean severe. We, we hear stories of believers, and we will do in the video clip shortly, where things are much more trying than we experience. But actually, all of us are persecuted. The word comes from the word pursue. That we, as followers of Jesus, are in Christ. We've sung it, in Christ alone. That we are safe and welcomed and belong to God. We are held in the palm of his hand. Nothing can snatch us away. But as believers, we are pursued by the evil one. We are pursued by those who don't want us to reflect the light of God, to stop us walking in the ways of Jesus. The Bible's most radical verse focuses on heaven. In our day and age, we we have all sorts of uh, ideas, we have all sorts of concepts about heaven. Uh, Some of them aren't very helpful, I have to say. Some of them have kind of come from all sorts of, of avenues and spheres. If I said to you, what is heaven like? Uh, you might come up with all sorts of ideas. If I said to you, what does, um, what does heaven mean to you? You might think, you might remember the meal out last night that you were taking all for Sunday lunch and that dessert was heavenly. What do you mean by that? I guess I suppose it means it was amazing. Sometimes Christians are labeled that they're so heavenly minded, they're no earthly use. Or people perceive Christianity all about, oh, it's all about pie in the sky when you die. But one of our aid organizations get it, gets it right, talks about we believe in life before death. When Jesus teaches, he does speak about heaven. Blessed are the poor, all the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Theirs is the kingdom. We talk of heaven and we, we kind of think of all sorts of things. We maybe, thinks of, maybe you think of harps and clouds and, and all sorts of, uh, of curious things. But Revelation pictures it well. In fact, so much of, of the book of Revelation speaks into the context of now. It says uh, that often we struggle in this age, that it is tough. We've looked at verses that speak of beasts and monsters and dragons and uh, of of things, bad things that happen in this world of enduring patiently with tenacious faith. But Revelation also paints for us a great hope that isn't just pie in the sky when we die, but is about the reality of faith that strengthens us and undergirds us and holds us even in the now. So I hope uh, you're challenged by the most radical verse in the Bible. Let's watch and listen to what Ron teaches.
How many of you want to go to heaven? Asked a famous preacher. We all put our hands up. And then he leaned forward and he asked another question. How many of you want to go to heaven now? There was a palpable gasp and only a few hesitantly put up their hands. He had nailed us inside a minute. Yes, we all wanted to go to heaven, but not now. We wanted more life. Heaven was for those who were on their deathbed or the very, very elderly. But the book of Revelation ends, indeed the whole Bible for that matter, with a vision of our heavenly home, which ironically says will be on earth. And it's probably no surprise that those in the suffering church often long for it most intensely. There was a fearful story told of a Christian father whose house was once surrounded by Islamic State fighters. We know you have a 14-year-old daughter, they said. Bring her out to us and we might let you live. Wait here, said the father. And he disappeared into the house to fetch her. Suddenly, there came the sound of a gunshot. The fighters rushed upstairs to discover that the father had shot his own daughter rather than give her into their hands. To his surprise, they all backed out and left him alone. Why did you do it? He was asked later. And he would always reply, I didn't feel like I had much choice. I knew what they would do to her. We all knew the stories. She would have been raped to death in front of my eyes. I couldn't let that happen to her. I wanted to give her a pain-free death rather than a terrible one. So I said to her, my darling daughter, I'm going to send you to heaven early. These men are here to rape you to death. I won't let that happen to you. And remember, I will follow you to heaven very soon, for they will kill me once they see what I've done. So we prayed quickly, I pulled the trigger, the fighters rushed in, and to my astonishment, they just stared at me in a kind of awe and left. But how can you live with yourself, he was asked. And he said, well, there are days when I can't. I cannot understand either why they let me live. But this is how I can go on. I know where she is, and I will soon be with her there. I know where she is, and I will soon be with her there. Very few of us will have an experience that traumatic, but it does illustrate the power of a heavenly future that is as beautiful as our present life is challenging. And what a loss it is when we do not dwell on that vision enough. In fact, one of the most encouraging elements of the Christian life is to see the difference a heavenly future with Christ makes to the lives of those we respect and love. My father was told he had inoperable cancer when he was 87. The doctor gave him a year. He died nine months later. But when I was going through his papers, I found this paragraph in his diary on the day his cancer was revealed in all its fatality. And he wrote, God has spared my dear wife and family until now. So it is fitting that I lead the way home to heaven. 
If God is saying your race is run, then I leave myself in his hands, grateful for a full, fulfilling long life. My concern is to finish my course with joy. There is obvious regret at leaving family behind, but this is the last hurdle and cannot be bypassed. I should be there in advance to welcome each loved one home. By the grace of God, when heaven beckons, we must not linger or be reluctant to obey. A loving Father and a gracious Savior can be trusted to the end. Farewell to a tired and troubled earth and welcome eternity. Heaven really works if we give it a chance. This vision of the heavenly city and our eternal destiny then is presented significantly by John in telling us what is not there. First of all, there's no sea and no night. What that means is that there's no beast that is trying to take our worship away from God because as we've seen in the book so far, beasts come from the sea. And then there are no enemies because enemies attack at night. So if no beasts, and no enemies, then there's no persecution in heaven. No sea, no night. Because the Bible is significantly a Hebrew book, the sea was a dangerous entity to such a landlocked people. That's why Jonah fled to the sea when God asked him to preach to the Ninevites. He thought that perhaps by going to sea, he was going beyond the reach of his God. But his big surprise is to discover that his God is not just the God of the land of Israel, but the God of the whole world, including the sea. Heaven extends our horizons, and that's important, because in life, we all have to cope with what might be called a meaning deficit. Things often don't have enough meaning within a human lifespan. This is rather a short time in which to figure out the will of God for a culture, a nation, a neighborhood, a life even. We need a longer time span for the injustices to be dealt with, the mistakes to be overcome, our potential to be fulfilled. Otherwise, it looks like our enemies are winning. In the vision, the fact that there are no enemies is emphasized by another no. There are no closed gates, no need. And if you look at the dimensions of the heavenly city, we find that the buildings in the cube that is heaven are 150 miles high, but the walls are 150 feet high. Again, if you have no enemies, you don't need high defensive ramparts. It's a place of peace where all the evil has been expunged and all the injustices corrected. We need that heavenly horizon just as much as that dear father. What meaning could he make without heaven for killing his daughter? It was only the existence of heaven that made him think it was an act of mercy. Without heaven, it was just an act of murder. So we have a meaning deficit that is addressed by heaven, but we also have a perfection deficit. We are made to long for a life in which everything will work out and nothing fades away. That's why the famous philosopher of Ecclesiastes said we have eternity in our hearts. 
But suffering is all around us, telling us that the world is broken and that our dreams cannot come true in this life. So we get another group of no's in this passage. What heaven has none of. No crying, no pain, no sorrow, no grief, no death. In other words, no suffering. If the absence of the beast means we have no persecution, the absence of death and tears means we have no suffering either. Here, we have a perfection deficit, but in heaven, everything is perfect. I recall a couple who lost their unborn child. Their only comfort is that it is within the gift of Christ that the child they never brought fully into the world was taken into heaven. And that when they die, they have the delight of looking forward to meeting that child for the first time and getting to know them. Because when a child is conceived, it's not conceived for a short time, but for the whole of eternity, if God wills it. They brought a child into the world. As an earthly story, it was a tragedy. With a heavenly dimension, it's an eternal joy. And maybe it's just a spiritual fact that we really only value heaven when we're in the shadow of death. No persecution, no suffering. But there's a further set of no's in the picture of heaven. No temple, no sun, no moon. And this addresses what we might call the worship deficit. And this is because we can't see God here, and that's a frustration. John tells us no one has seen God at any time. There's a famous theologian who says that God, because he's invisible at least while we are on earth, has to wear suits to be seen, to be known. So what clothes does God put on to be seen? He says these three suits are creation, creativity, and Christ. Creation, that's the, the beauty of the universe. It's not always so clear. There are earthquakes, animals devouring each other. So it takes faith, though, to see the order and the beauty underneath the callousness and the horror creativity, where humans care for each other and respond to the grace of God. These bring us scriptures as well as art. We are unique in our ability to respond to and notice the grace of God. And then Christ, when God falls out of infinity and allows himself to be seen in a human form. For Christians, a few were allowed to see him in the flesh. The disciples, of course, most of whom become the apostles. Others, like his mother and the women whom he knew, like Mary of Magdalene. But now, we see the face of Christ in those of us who belong to the body of Christ, each other. That comes as a shock, but the best chance we have on this earth to see the face of Christ is to look into the faces of other Christians. So why is heaven presented to us in terms of there being no temple? It's because God no longer needs to be mediated. He can be directly seen in heaven. In fact, that's why there's no sun and no moon needed in heaven. The glory of God and of the Lamb is light enough. Temples are where God is propitiated. In the Old Testament, it was where you sacrificed through priests to have your sins forgiven. In the New Testament, the temple was finished, but the ecclesia, the church, took its place 
no propitiation was needed anymore, but church was still a place where you had to discern the will of God. It wasn't clear, wasn't obvious, it wasn't easy. But there's no need anymore, no more discernment. God doesn't wear any more suits. We are face to face with him. That's the new reality. And that will be so wonderful. If you go into a cathedral in the West that was built from, say, 1300 onwards, you find that the architecture is trying to do one thing, bounce your eye upwards. The soaring pillars, the pointed arches, the stained glass, it's all saying, look up to heaven. And in the 20th century, there was a cathedral in Los Angeles that took it all a stage further. It was called the Crystal Cathedral. It wasn't made out of crystal, but glass. In the older medieval cathedrals, when you looked up, you saw a beautiful vaulted roof. But although you lifted your head, it was still a roof. But in the Crystal Cathedral, when you lifted your head, you saw a deep blue sky. Or in the evening, a dark sky full of celestial lights. Yes, the eye should bounce up in any temple, up to heaven. And in any life, we should ensure our spiritual eyes bounce upwards to our heavenly home, to our eternal destiny, to our greatest gift, a face-to-face -face experience with Almighty God and the Lamb for all time. And so the great deficits of our life on this earth, the meaning deficit, the perfection deficit, the worship deficit, are all gloriously overcome. Yes, maybe it takes the nearness of death to make us long for heaven, but we all need the heavenly vision to live a fully human life on earth, freed from fear, if not from sorrow. Brother Andrew is a Dutchman who made it his business to travel to persecuted Christians around the world for over 60 years. Sum up what you were trying to give these persecuted people you took such trouble to go and meet, I remember asking him once. And he thought for a minute and he said, I want them to see the face of God and lose their fear. He said, once Christians lose their fear, God becomes clear, the church becomes triumphant, and the nations themselves learn to worship Jesus Christ. That's the point of the book of Revelation. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Lose your fear, and you will, when you see the throne and the Lamb who sits upon it. Simon Ponsonby writes, just trying to capture something of this. He says, the, the sounds and tunes and the harmonies and the colors and the rhythms that will be seen and heard on that day will be the most incredible sounds, tunes, harmonies, and colors and rhythms ever seen and heard. The creativity will be so amazing that it will never cease to grab us, inspire us, and cause us to worship all the louder and stronger. This is our hope. No more tears, no more fear of death, no more disappointments, no more pain. No more sickness, no more friends who let us down, no more husbands or wives being unfaithful, no more of our children suffering through cancer, no more broken promises, no more job losses, no more insecurity, no more power struggles, 
No more elderly people being abused. No more drug dealers ruling through fear on depressed council estates. No more watching a loved one struggle with debilitating effects of a degenerative condition. No more bullying in the school playground. No more pictures of starving, emaciated children on the TV. No more more homelessness or despair. No more going through life with the scars of an abusive father or an absent mother. Just color and light and life and laughter and beauty and the wonder that will never cease, never fade, never run out. This is our hope. And we will one day gather around the throne and worship in this condition and in this way. Jesus will be the center of it all. Those believers in the New Testament and in each generation since have drawn comfort and strength and courage and have not feared because they've grasped the heavenly vision, the most radical verse. I pray for us this morning as we worship in a moment, as we pray for one another, that we would be strengthened with this certainty. How do we know? Because it's not yet happened. Because of Jesus who has come. Not wishful thinking, but evidenced. As he spoke and showed and taught and declared and manifested in his ministry. Evidenced through history. One of the most certain things that we can put our trust in. And he spoke of this. And he rose from the grave and the tomb was empty. And said, I go and prepare a place for you. In my father's house. And the disciples at Pentecost, which we celebrated last week, moved from being mice to lions. From being timid and fearful and shut away to spilling out into the world to say, come follow this Jesus. For this is true. If you want to take that step of faith this morning, do so. In certain confidence. Not just as an insurance policy for the future, but to say, I will follow you in the here and now. I will live for you now. With this certain great hope. We know what is to come.